Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton, and today I'd like to just look quickly at the evidence that we have that the universe must have been created. I guess most of us have heard of uh, the Big Bang Theory, how uh, some eons of time ago, uh, typically estimated by scientists to be somewhere between uh, 12 and 15 billion years ago, that the there was some sort of... Um, single event called a singularity in which uh, suddenly a large amount of energy was formed and uh, this energy expanded and um, converted into uh, into matter, into atoms of uh, hydrogen or deuterium, and that these gaseous atoms uh, condensed and uh, became uh, and formed the um, planets and galaxies that we um, observe out in the universe today. And it all sounds very, very feasible, this sort of explosion and, and ev- everything formed, the amazing structures of the, of the galaxies uh, formed. And, and this is a scenario that's presented in, in pretty well all, all the textbooks. On the other hand, the Bible says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And it, it talks about how uh, there was the earth and then God created the, the stars and the, and the sun. And uh, in another part of the Bible, it talks about how God stretched out the heavens. And so this is a, this is a very uh, different scenario. As a matter of fact, God talks about uh, you know, creating uh, the earth and, and so forth in six days. And we know that, uh, and we hear that, you know, many people think today, well, that, yes, that just didn't occur. The, the earth was formed as part of the formation of the universe millions of years ago. It was a very slow process. Well, the thing is, when we look at the actual science that we know today and the actual observations, our understanding of science today, the bottom line is that that scenario really can't happen. The Big Bang scenario can't happen. And it's extremely complex. The, the mathematical equations that are involved are extremely complex. But we know that there are some basic laws of science that demonstrate that, in actual fact, the Big Bang didn't happen. Now, over the past... Uh, sessions, we've been considering the testimony of 50 scientists who contributed chapters to the book In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. Now, they, all the contributors to this book have had doctorates uh, in a, in a science-related field. And remember, if you uh, want to actually read their actual uh, chapters, they're very easy to find on the internet. Just Google Creation Ministries International and when their page comes up, you'll see a little search box up in the top right-hand corner and enter in In Six Days. 
and the first item that will come up on the search will actually be a link to all the chapters in the book. When you click on that link, it'll come up with a list of names. You click on the names and they will be the uh, chapters of those particular scientists. Now, at the end of the last program that we had, I mentioned the name of Dr. Keith uh, Wanser, who is Professor of Physics at California State University in Fullerton and uh, earned his PhD in condensed matter physics from the University of California, Irvine. Now, it's very interesting that he actually deals with this uh, issue of the Big Bang. And one of the points that he um, points out is that if we, if we have an overall picture of, of evolution, which is being taught to um, our children in, in schools and, and colleges and, and even um, uh, Christian uh, colleges uh, from an article that I was reading the other day. Many Christian colleges now have adopted teaching the theory of evolution rather than um, uh, God's creation. He points out that there are very interesting problems right at the beginning of the, the quantum cosmology which uh, predicts the Big Bang originated from a quantum fluctuation in a vacuum. And he, he says that this speculation is nothing more than simple explanation because all experimentally observed processes involving elementary particles and nuclear reactions, something called the Byron number, is conserved. Now, that's spelled B-A-R-Y-O-N. Now, the conservation of Bayron number ensures that when matter is brought into existence from energy, matter occurs in equal numbers of both matter and antimatter. For example, if you're producing an electron, there will be an equal number of positrons formed. If you're forming protons, there'll be an equal number of antiprotons produced. Now, he points out that when we actually observe the universe and when we measure the environment of space, we find that as far as we're able to observe, the universe appears to have an extreme dominance of matter over antimatter. In other words, it's, it's mainly matter. There's very little, relatively little, Antimatter. Now, this totally contradicts the notion that the Big Bang produced matter that we see in the universe around us. Now, elementary particle physicists have recognised this problem and they have attempted to propose what they call grand unified theories or GUTs, which hypothesise mathematical terms and mathematical equations which violate Byron number conservation. In other words, what they've got to do is they've got to set up a system somehow that actually violates the uh, conservation of Byron number in order to produce this X amount of uh, this excess of, of matter in the universe. Now, when they devise these theories and hypotheses and they work out the equations, 
what happens is that these theories predict that the proton is unstable. Now, just to revise, remember when perhaps at school you studied science and you learned the structure of the atom. In the very centre of the atom, in the nucleus of the atom, one of the heavy particles in the nucleus of the atom had a positive charge and that was called a proton. As a matter of fact, a hydrogen atom just consists of a proton with a positive charge with an orbiting electron negative charge. So that's the, the simplest atom. And, of course, heavy hydrogen or deuterium has a proton in the nucleus plus a neutron in the nucleus, which has no charge, it's neutral, and an orbiting electron. And there, that's the simplest element. It's the lightest element. They're the, the, the fundamental uh, building blocks of, of matter in many ways. But what the scientists found when they developed these theories to try and explain the Big Bang, these theories predict that the proton is unstable and will decay. So we, we learn about uh, radioactive decay, that these elements slowly break down and change into other elements um, and emit particles, and that's, of course, the, the method that uh, they attempt to date rocks um, and attempt to establish the long ages. And, and in fact, this is the same method that is applied to estimate the age of the uh, the universe as being somewhere between you know 12 to 15 billion years of age. It's all based on um, the the breakdown of the uh, the these atoms, radio radioactive atoms, which we call radioisotopes, and it's because they they're unstable and they they break down. So when we uh, again look at this theory, as I was saying, it predicts that the proton itself, this basic particle in the atom, should also break down. But all the experimental evidence to detect protein de uh, proton decay rather, have failed. They've failed to find any evidence of proton decay. And in fact, the lower limits of the lifetime of a proton is at least 10 to the plus 31 years. Now, to give you an idea how big that number is and how long the half-life of uh, a proton is estimated to be as minimum, it would be 10,000 billion, billion, billion years. So the estimate uh, life of the uh, universe say, or the age of the universe is, say, 15 billion years by these theories, and yet the life of a proton is estimated to be 10,000 billion, billion, billion years. So we can see it's, it's much more stable. In fact, there's no, uh, you know, Dr. Wenzer points out that in fact there's no experimental evidence for the violation of Bayeron number conservation. And he says that this strongly calls into question any Big Bang scenario for the origin of matter in the universe. In other words, there's no known theory of physics that fits the evidence that we can actually go out and measure today that can explain the origin of matter in the universe, let alone the uh, origin of the proto-galaxies and galaxies and, and all these sort of things. On the other hand, however, 
creationists have developed cosmology molecules for the literal six-day creation in terms of uh, the Earth's time frame of uh, time reference, um, if taken to be somewhere in the centre of the universe, um, to account for the production of the universe. And he explains that in his, in his chapter. It's quite, quite detailed and you can, you can read about uh, this. As I said in that, um, in that reference, if you go to creationministriesinternational.com, uh, just do a Google search on that and uh, enter in, in the search engine there in six days and you'll see the chapter coming up by Dr. Keith Wanzer. He also points out that uh, you know one of the biggest stumbling blocks that life on Earth is, is very young and a six-day creation is associated with the radioisotope dating methods and uh, the exceedingly old ages of rocks and fossils inferred from such methods. Um, However, the, one of the interesting things that have uh, you know, contributed uh, to this is that he, and, he, and he points this out is that uh, the estimation for the half-life of these radioisotopes that are used to calculate the, um, these very long ages are based on very, very short-term measurements of, of half-life. And he, he points out that um, the exponential decay law for radioactive isotopes has only been experimentally verified for short-lived isotopes with half-lives of less than 100 years. And so if we're extrapolating into a lot of the uh, isotopes that are... Uh, are used to measure radioactive decay, he points out that this involves extrapolation of, of many orders of magnitude, you know, at least seven orders of magnitude. But he also says that there are theoretical reasons to believe that the longer-lived radioisotope should exhibit significant deviations from the exponential decay law. He, he says the rigorous quantum mechanical theory of decay of long-lived radioisotopes is currently under investigation to, in, uh, to measure the order of the size of this deviation. So there's many, many problems with the uh, physics behind um, the, the Big Bang theory and these estimated estimations of long times for the age of the universe. And this is something to, to bear in mind when, we're, when we are considering how we came to be here. The, the fact is that when we look at what we know about the laws of physics today, they can't explain the origin of the galaxies, they can't explain the origin of the stars, they can't explain the origin of the universe that we know. But the Bible says that God can explain all this. And I think this is a very reasonable explanation. Another chapter in the book In Six Days was contributed by uh, Dr. John uh, Rankin. Now, he um, is uh, a, well, uh, was at the time of the writing of uh, this book a senior lecturer at uh, La Trobe University in Australia. And uh, he held uh, a BSc honours with uh, 
uh, first class honours in applied mathematics from Monash University and a PhD in mathematical physics from the University of Adelaide. And in actual fact, his PhD was looking at trying to solve these very areas relating to try and uh, develop a mathematical physics explanation for the origin of the universe. And these were looking at uh, the mathematical solutions, uh, 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 looking at solving the mathematical equations that Einstein developed uh, to describe different possible universes uh, as allowed by the laws of um, physics. And he said that, uh, and and to, to quote him, he says, my research project was to pursue the question if the universe started off as a homogeneous distribution of atomic gases and plasma, so it's charged particles, would the typical small statistical fluctuations in density grow and condense under the known laws of gravity to form the proto-galaxies, the precursors of galaxies, and with all the other complex constituents of globulous clusters, stars, planets, moons, asteroids and comets of today. As you read through his chapter, he points out that they spent years, five years, researching to uh, possible solutions uh, and that would lead to possible explanations of how the matter, assuming basic matter, had formed, and that is assuming that the laws of uh, Bayron number that uh, Dr Keith Wanzer had, had talked about, assuming that somehow that violation could be explained and that matter actually formed, even if those gaseous molecules were there, could they actually form the solids come together to form the stars and the galaxies and the planets? And the bottom line was they can't. No matter how much you try to put in gravitational influences, minor fluctuations, all the statistical uh, types of random events that could possibly produce the seeding that could lead to the formation of stars and so forth and galaxies, it didn't work. So here we have an expert in this field who spent five years working in this area that demonstrates that you just can't explain the origin of the stars, of the galaxies, by any known laws of physics that we know of today. He actually uh, writes at the end, the burden of evolution is to explain everything, including the mathematics, the logics, and the thinking processes involved. This is a burden that increases in size as knowledge continues to grow. It is a burden that takes away our firm foundations for thought and scientific explanation. Maybe the evolutionist approach is wrong then. The creationist approach allows us to have exceedingly intricate and beautiful world at the outset, ready for us to explore its wonderful wonders scientifically. This is the approach that puts us on a firm foundation, and this is why I believe in creation rather than evolution. And so... This is the testimony of a mathematical physicist that worked firsthand in this area of research at the University of Adelaide. And, of course, I think at that time um, uh, Dr Paul Davies was there as well, uh, who's written a a number of books in this area as as well. 
um, all trying to solve how the universe could form by itself and there's no known explanation. So to me, this just find, you know, provides really, really strong evidence that the universe must have been created. We, we have a supernatural origin to the universe. And, uh, and I think this is very important to remember. We have textbooks out there now that are telling people there was a big bang. You have, we have television programs that talk about this. We have scientists that come on to our uh, documentary programs and talk about the Big Bang Theory. But what we need to understand is that at the present time, there's no basis for those statements. These are statements of faith by these scientists. In other words, it's, 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 it's like a religious faith. Now, I can, I can have faith too, but my faith is, is based on reading the Bible learning uh, what it says and, and thinking about what it says about the experiences of people that had encounters with God, with their answers to prayer. And when I talk to other Christians, I, I find many other Christians who've had these similar experiences, these similar answers to prayer in their life. And as I said, um, we, we'll look at uh, some more of these um, in, in future faith and science uh, programs. But let me just tell you um, a couple of uh, my experiences. When uh, my wife and I were early married, we bought a, uh, a home on a, uh, on a small acreage in a little uh, village in Tasmania called Glen Hewen. It was an old house, very old house, but it had been in its day a lovely house, a four-bedroom home, and it, it had been let go uh, for quite a while, but, but we were doing it, it up. And, and um, a couple of years after we were married, we uh, had our uh, first, uh, first child, and as she uh, grew up and uh, needed to run around and, and play, uh, my wife wanted to fence in the area Around the uh, around the house. Now it had an old fence there, an old lattice fence. It was really fallen; had fallen down. There were bits missing, uh, but it was important because uh, we were in an area surrounded by orchards, and there were dams, and and we wanted to make sure that there was a, a safe uh, area for our little girl to grow up. And and my wife said to me, "Well, you know, I, I want us to have a have a new fence now." As most young couples struggle to uh, have finances to uh, pay for their home and to, especially when family starts to all the new things for baby and, and growing up and, uh, and, and budgeting, we, we certainly didn't have very much money and, and, to, and to build a fence uh, around the house, all, all around the, the house where my wife wanted it was you know, quite, quite a big job. And, and I said, look, you know, this is going to be a big job. It's going to be a lot of money to, to buy the, the wooden fence. And she said, look, I'd like a little picket fence around the house, you know, just like you see in those romantic pictures. And I said, well, you know, look, we, we just don't have the, the money. We're going to have to save up for a while. And she said, well, we can't really wait for that, you know. Our little girl is growing up. And, and uh Anyway, uh, we were talking about it, and I can remember one night, I think it was a Friday night, she said, well, look, I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to pray and ask God to send us a fence. And I can remember she prayed that. 
Just pray, God, I want us somehow to be able to get a fence around the house. We need the fence now. Now, I think it was that Sunday. It was a very short period of time afterwards, and I'm pretty sure it was a Sunday. We lived in this little village of Glenhuon. I was probably going to the tip, and I drove past um, a house that was just down the, the, the road from us, perhaps uh, um, half a kilometre away, and there was a guy I knew, Norm, was on his tractor with forks on the back and he was lifting out the picket fence around the house. It was a white picket fence. And I said, hi, Norm, what what you doing? And he said to me, he said, oh, I said, some time ago, Lucille, that's his wife, had said, look, I'd I'd really like our house to have more the uh, American look, you know, where you don't have a fence around the yard. It, it's sort of open. And they had this lovely two, two-storey two Cape Cod-type uh, home. And it was a white picket fence in good condition. I, I said to Norm, what are you going to do with it? And he said, um, oh, I'm, I'm just going to put it down the back. We'll probably burn it. And I, I said, could I have it? He said, Sure. Um, uh, I, I said, we'd like to put it around our house. He said, oh, I'll bring it up for you. So this guy came then, it's on the, on the Sunday, with these sections of picket fence on the back of forks of his tractor, and he brought them up the road, up our driveway, up to our, up to our house, lifted out the old fallen-down remnants of this lattice-type fence, and look... It's amazing. The length between the fence posts was exactly the same. So as he lifted the old fence posts out, he was able to actually drop the new picket fence sections in to where the fence posts had been. Now, the other thing is this. Our house, as I said, was set on this one and a half acres, and it had three gates. There was a gate opposite the front door, which faced down to the road. There was a gate opposite the side door, which was where the driveway came up. And there was a gate on the uh, outside the back door and laundry um, from where uh, this was in the old lattice fence. Well, you wouldn't believe it. This new fence came with three gates and the sections matched exactly where our paths were, where the concrete paths were. We didn't have to make any carpentry alterations to the fence. We just had to put it together. Now, you know, these sort of prayers, and my wife was made, so it was a very rapid answer prayer. And I, I guess to some people you might say, well, that, that's, that's trivial, John. But to us, that was a spectacular answer to prayer. It provided our need. We now had a safe fence around our child for our little girl to pray in. And we have, when I talk to people, there are so many experiences of this that, that demonstrate that there's a God that, that overrules. At the same time, of course, we read about the bad things that happen. But they're, they're bad things where people are doing bad things under the influence, we believe, of the very bad forces that God talks about in the, uh, in the Bible of Satan and the evil angels. So when it comes down to faith and science, we can see that science supports what the Bible says. Our personal experiences, in my view, support what the Bible says. And this is why I have 
such strong faith that we can trust the Bible's message that God loves us and wants us to accept his wonderful gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Well, I'm Dr John Ashton. You've been listening to Faith and Science. I hope you will join us for the next session. Bye for now. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.